Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is a continuation of my conversation with actor Nana Visitor. No content warnings for this episode. We begin today with my unexpected reaction to her story. Well, here we are again. Here we are. <laughs> here we are. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I called you right after the the last time we were in this studio talking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I, I've got to tell you that I was, even though that was not the first time I heard the story, about your traumatic experience, your rape and kidnapping, I was completely sort of gobsmacked this time, and I couldn't even get my thoughts together at all. I, it was such a powerful thing that I heard that it it actually, I was almost this time unable to think, and I felt all I wanted to do was, you know, basically just take it in and be there and <laughs> just keep saying, I'm sorry and listen. And I, 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 I couldn't motivate to keep going and asking you different questions. And it was the first time that's ever happened in that way. What do you think was different for you? I think this time I took in the details. I, it was a, the first time I think I was so shocked when you told me that I actually remember almost putting my hands over my ears for part of it mm. because it was such a nightmare to hear and such a shock that somebody like you would be, you know, horribly and uh, abused in any way. And so I don't think I actually was able to take it in as much. There was something about just sitting directly across from you and absolutely you're in my eye line and hearing you describe it in such detail that this time the impact was huge and I found it really, really important for me to just acknowledge that. And, and if we really listen to people, the, the impact is huge. And yet it's such an inspiration because you've worked it through and you are able to actually communicate to other people a strong message of you can deal with your post-traumatic stress and you can go forward and there are ways that you can really connect with the world again and not just isolate yourself and be in a um, a bad place. I was aware that um, it, was ve- it was very difficult for people and early on when it first happened, I wasn't... Uh, it wasn't the most healthy exchange, I don't think. If I told someone, it was because I needed for them to forgive me for not being fully there with them. I needed uh, to know that they wouldn't leave me if they, you know, the friendship or the relationship, if they knew this thing about me, because it still was dripping in shame for me. Wow. And and it did happen. A girlfriend, uh, when I first told her right after it happened, she said, I, I can't be friends with you. I feel like you attracted this to yourself. Whoa. And, and, and some people do feel that way, you know. They, and, and that's almost like a little bit of magical thinking to keep them safe. And that's, you know. Yeah. You, you, that's, I think, part of it. It just, it feels so vulnerable just to hear what's mm. happened to somebody. It, it was, uh, yeah, totally. I felt, I felt very connected to you, and I felt it was so horrible that basically, I, I really didn't want to make small talk about anything. I just <laughs> sort of wanted to that that I needed to take that in and and process it. That's that's really what 
it showed me is that when there are these major things that someone shares with us, even if it's not the first time, because that, that was not the first time, there was something that was really powerful. And I, I felt like a fraud to talk about anything else afterwards. And rather than, you know, be totally present and honest about it and say, you know what, I can't, uh, I, I can't ask you another question about something that's on my list because this, just to know this about you and how hard you've worked and how successfully you've worked on yourself to learn how to process and deal with this in your life and go forward. I mean, it's pretty amazing, frankly. That's, that's the good news. That's really the good news. It is. It's not the, the difficult news is that it's not easy and it takes everything you are. But um, I have to say how much I appreciate that you called and that you said, I just, because I, that's right. It was, it was something I went through, but now in the telling, it's something you go through. And I honor that moment for you too. You know, to when you said, well, I think that what I was so upset about is that I, I brought them home, you know, but I totally was going, it's like you want to say goodbye to your, your child. You want anything that could be hopeful. Maybe, maybe something's going to change and it'll be okay if we go back. I mean, I can imagine that because otherwise it's completely giving up. So it, it, it makes sense to me, but I can also see how someone could rationalize it as a, a, a really bad choice, you know, or something. Yeah, no, at the, at once it was finished and I wasn't dead, my, my only thought was I should have let them kill me. I never should have brought them wow. back to where my baby was. Uh, and that is what, that was the thought I wrestled with. So hard. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's such a devastating thought because, uh, from someone on the outside, I go, I, I, I totally get it. And you made the choice you had to make at that time. And uh, it clearly, in retrospect, even knowing that your child is this wonderful grown man. And I mean, what a good choice that was because, because you're alive. I, there's, you know, when, when we're in our emotions, I feel there's a truth and genius in our emotions if we really feel them and and deal with them and don't push them away. Uh, I, that's right. I, that is like the Rumi poem, it, you know, this this life is, this body is a guest house. Invite all the emotions and let them wreck the, throw the furniture around, It happily let them in. They will leave. It's a guest house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Um yeah, and it's interesting talking about it again. I am in a place of feeling very vulnerable. So that's really interesting. And I think it's about the fragility of, of life, really. I mean... Um, it, it's, it's not a familiar place for us, uh, vulnerability. And I don't think you can really feel compassion uh, without it. And for some people... I agree. Being vulnerable is not safe because they've had some kind of trauma where they can just, it's, it feels like falling in a hole. Right. I mean, for years, I didn't watch movies that had any kind of violence. I mean, for 20 odd years. Wow. Any kind of violence, anything that would send me down that hole again. Right. Uh, or really what it was, was allow me to feel feelings that I hadn't dealt with. And uh, that can be overwhelming. It's funny because um, I don't know. Do you know that I, I taught uh, theatrical clown at a lot of theater I, programs? I okay. do. So one of, I mean, the biggest thing in doing that is you have to be able to be vulnerable in order to have success in that class. You have to be able to laugh at yourself, which also puts you in a vulnerable state because that means you have failed at something or, you know, not done something well. And it's really a process of stripping away all of our protections that we have spent a lifetime putting in front of us because we assume that all these protections are going to make people like us more. Like, oh, I'll, I'll seem more together. I'll seem more intellectual. I'll seem more tougher. I'll seem whatever. 
And it's actually, and I've seen this, I mean, for decades in my classes, it's, it's like absolute, this is the truth. When people allow them to fall away, all those defenses, they A, become incredibly lovable. The audience, we mm. all embrace them. We, they are funny. They are so there that we completely identify with them. Even if we're glad we're not them at the moment, because like, you know, I don't know what, whatever is going on on stage. But people who can't let go of those, we just don't care about them as much when we're watching them on stage. It's just amazing. It's in a classroom situation. And I obviously understand that people just aren't ready to take those defenses down. Obviously, that's what's going on. So all I can do is to put them in comic situations where maybe they will realize that they'll get the greatest success if they allow themselves to fail. And it's sort of accepting that failure and vulnerability. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons why when, uh, you know, I become vulnerable, it's very powerful. It's a powerful feeling. It is. And I like it when I don't just clobber myself with all my defenses because I don't like myself defended nearly as much as I like myself vulnerable. No, it, it's it's like a herd mentality. Once we put, uh, Tara Brock, who's a wonderful teacher, talks about the spacesuit we put on. And the spacesuit is all the protections that we need to uh, wear for the atmosphere of our world. Um, we also need it for our shows in order to get paid. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when we start to identify with those protective devices that we use, then we lose exactly what you're talking about the truth that's really there for all of ourselves. Right, right. Amazing. Uh, anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and did I ask you, did you ever do MDMI, which is. Um, isn't that the rapid eye movement thing? No. No, okay. No. I just wondered if, if you had tried it. Um, so here's some questions I want to ask you about, okay? Oh, by the way, I know what I wanted to share with you. So in terms of this clown, one of the greatest, I think you would love this book. It's a very short book. It's like a, a story, extended story by Henry Miller, and it's called The Smile at the Foot of the Ladder. And it's about a clown, and people laugh when he does stuff and everything, but he wants, he goes, that's not enough. I want to bring the audience joy. And so he goes on this journey, and it's all about how can I find the truth and the joy. And he finally, he's looking for a ladder, for a bridge between the two things of, of the, the thing of making people laugh from like some prank or whatever to actually bringing them lasting joy. And it's about the gift of surrender. Mm. And it's a phrase that I, I really find is a beautiful phrase because it's about surrender instead of defending. And it's not about surrender out of weakness, like, okay, it's we've put up a fight. Up. It's not giving up. It's actually it's, it's a battle within yourself, and it's a search for truth. And I think that's one of the most... Um, important things in my life, and I have the feeling it is in yours, is just that sort of search for truth and and not, you know, covering up things inside of you, but actually trying to see who you are, um, which is kind of what, why I called the podcast, Who Do You Think You Are? I mean, hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of that. And I'm, I feel it's something that I say to myself, all the time when I'll do something, I'll go, who do you think you are by doing that? You know, just like, what? Stop it. <laughs> you know, because the defenses come so quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking when I was reading stuff about you and I went, okay, I know what, if Nana had been in one of my clown workshops, I know what her clown name would have been because that's a big thing. What would it have been? Boobalette. Oh, Yes. <laughs> Oh, is yes. that not perfect? That's that's it. That's my clown name. I I read on on about your your shop, your your pastry shop, and I went, oh my god, that is you, Boobalette. Yeah. It's something even now. You have such a bubbling energy. Number one, okay, but there's something about the Boobalette. And describe what a Boobalette is, because some a, a Boobalette is well, it was what I named this cookie <laughs> that that I made up, which was a filled. Um, shortbread cookie filled with different exotic uh, fillings. 
And it means literally little fatty. And it, they were <laughs> fat little cookies. Oh, my God. I love it. That is it's perfect. It's like all these little exotic things in this delicious shortbread. That's great. I love that. My other one would maybe be, and I want to use this sometime. I want to shop. I don't know what I want, but I want to call it Goat Queen. Because, again, when I was in New Mexico, I learned about goats. I wanted to have goats. So I oh. I studied goats. And... The most interesting thing, one of the most interesting thing things about them is that they have a queen and it's a female. Really? And if you want to get your herd to do something, you go to the queen and you have her do it and she will make everybody else follow. And I just love the idea of this very humble animal um, having such a, a regal title, Goat Queen, <laughs> Queen of the Goats. It sounds wonderful That sounds to me. great. Yeah. So tell me about um, the place where you lived in uh, New Mexico, because it seems like it was a really fabulous period in your life in many ways. It was. We lived in a little village called, actually, this is how I found it. I was doing a, a series called Wildfire, and we were shooting it in Albuquerque. And the first two weeks of shooting, and I knew we'd gone to series, I thought, I can't, I can't live here. Everything is brown. The, it, there, there are no, I, I feel like a cave dweller. I like <laughs> the canyons. I like trees. I, hmm. I could not understand this open space, and it was all one color. But within a couple of weeks, my eyes adjusted and I fell in love. They mm. they call it the land of enchantment, mm. but people who live there call it the land of entrapment because you fall in love and you don't want to leave, and that's absolutely true. Wow. So I asked people, okay, where do people where where do like the strange theatrical, you know, oddball people live? And they said Corrales, <laughs> which is a little village between Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And Matthew, my husband, and I found a house there, and we had a view of the Sandias and an acre of... Yeah, I saw that on Wik uh, Wikipedia, or I went to the page of the town, and it is really pretty. You're uh, right. It's, it's just wonderful. Especially outside in the adobe houses and then the mountains. It's so, so beautiful. Living in an adobe is one of my favorite ways of living. It's, it's wonderful. What moment did you decide to do the bakery, and how did that happen with your friend? Uh, so... My husband was on the board of the Little Arts Institute that was in this ancient little church. And they would have amazing pianists, all kinds of artists come and perform there. Um, and I would give the parties for oh. the artists afterwards. <laughs> oh, and, great. And I love cooking, so I would do these spreads. And people started asking me, would you do this for me? I'm, I, I'm having a bit. And it got to be... Uh, my daughter's getting married, would you? Wow. And so uh, my friend, my best friend there, Kim Montalvo and I started this business and went, uh, all right, let's let's try to see what we can do. And we came up with a bouboulette as the perfect kind of pastry to be able to ship because after all, we were in New Mexico. The reason I cooked so much there was I missed, uh, there wasn't a, a great variety of food in New Mexico. Right. They, they, it's mostly red or green. Do you want red or right. green? <laughs> it, what chili sauce <laughs> right. do you want That's covering right. your food? And right. it's delicious, but it's not what I was used to, you right. know, New York and LA where you can get Greek or yeah, Armenian, anything. whatever you want, Cuban. So I started cooking more and more to uh, give myself the tastes that I missed. And I started baking for the same reason. Uh, the bakeries weren't what I knew and what I loved. So I, I baked what I loved, and we started doing it that way. It also coincided with the show ending. I had huge creative cravings, um, but I didn't want to leave because my oldest son had come to us and said, please, I want to finish high school here. Oh, wow. And we had moved them from LA to Vegas, to New Mexico, to right, New York, right. all over the place. Right. So much that- He liked it there then. He loved it. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted to, he wanted to this have- This is Buster. Buster. Yeah. Wanted to have his senior year 
Oh, you know, of course. He wanted to finish. So that's what we did, which meant that we gave up all job opportunities. What we would normally do is hopscotch to the next place, which would be L.A. or New York to find work. Right. So we went, okay, we're not going to work. Um, and my husband started messing around in real estate. Um, I say messing around. No, he he was in real estate. And I started the bakery as a way to fulfill ourselves while we waited out this time of the boys ending school. Well, that, that's, that's a very wonderful and still very creative for yourself uh, way to live. Talk about um, parenting for a minute. What, what, um, what are the things that you think you did well with your kids? I think what I did well is that I uh, gave them what I had. I taught them what I knew. I, uh, hopefully I gave them uh, an eye for beauty and appreciation. I, uh, I remember, <laughs> I probably started a little too young, but I remember starting with Buster at five saying, what kind of man do you want to be? You want to be an honorable man. <laughs> right, good. <That's>, yes. <laughs> uh, being honorable was big to me. Um, That's so great. Every, and as I knew it, hot off the press, when I learned something better than what I had taught them before, I gave it to them as fast as I could. So as I evolved, my 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 information to them evolved. That's so that's so amazing that you say honorable. I did a, a prayer with um, with my son every night that I just constructed because I didn't want it to be any particular religion, and so I. Uh, but he he had loved the concept of angels, not particularly any religious thing, but just, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, we called it just a prayer to the angels. And the first thing is, may you always be honorable, <laughs> virtuous, noble, curious, love and be loved, be full of joy and laughter, find peace and wisdom in your life, learn from your mistakes, but don't, you know, on, on, but don't be afraid to make, you know, it was this thing. And, and it really began for years. And it was like, do the angels. Wow, it was, beautiful. it was this, and it was, it would be a, a sort of almost chanting thing that we would just do finally. And, and then he, you know, you'd almost be asleep by the end of it. That's powerful. <laughs> it, powerful words to leave him to, <laughs> to marinate on while he sleeps. But I'm with you. Honorable is a big, big deal. And yeah. uh, I think we've lost a lot of that uh, in in our lives today because of what's going on around us in the world. And it's it's crucial. It's yeah. really crucial. We have to reclaim that. We do. We do. Um, what's one of your very favorite uh, moments with uh, each of them? Just tiny little moment. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It's just Okay, one with Buster, uh, it, it comes to mind immediately because it was so funny. Uh, I... I taught him very early to be quiet on a set because I was, I became a, a single parent. And uh, it, if he couldn't come on set, it really limited our time together. So I taught him to be as quiet as a mouse. And one time he was around, he must've been around between three and four. And a grip came up to him as he was sitting on an Apple box waiting to watch me. I wasn't filming yet, so I overheard this. And the grip said, hey, Buster, how are you doing? And he very, very sweetly put his finger over his <laughs> mouth and says, shh, we're on a red light. <laughs> oh, that's so darling. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. So sweet. Yeah. It um, was it was really really <laughs> cute. How about Django? Django, um, I'll go around the same age for him. It's one of the best age. I it's, mean, that's three to four is just unbelievably. Yeah, amazing. because you you're starting to see what's really deep down inside. You might not see it for a while as they grow up, <laughs> but it it finally will be cultivated back into who they are. Uh, and Django was so adorable, and he'd be. He, it, we'd be in a store or something and, and people would say, here, here's a candy. Here, have a candy. And he'd say, thank you very much, but can I have one for my brother? 
and very seriously take it and didn't pocket oh, it, God. but take it back to Buster, whether it was just that Buster was behind him or if Buster was at home, he always made sure his brother was taken care of too. Oh, God, too. that is so sweet. Yeah. That is so sweet. It's a magical time. It's the time when they still... You know, reality is very unclear still, and it's yes. just starting to things have stories where maybe maybe something happens that's not always perfect. You know, and it's just a fascinating time. What's the memory of yours? Well, I I, I was just actually thinking before my son. I was thinking of my nephew because it's right at this age. I remember going. I gave him a puppet show when he was four. This whole oh. thing, right? Oh my God! And, what a puppet show that must have been. Well, you know, it was not. It was not a big production. It was just this thing that, you know, you could buy in a catalog. And, but I set it up in my my brother's office so that after he'd opened everything else up, I said, hey, come on, come on, let's go in here. And so he, he saw us both go in together. He saw me walk behind it. I then did a 30-minute puppet show. <sighs> he was dead silent and looked, didn't laugh, did nothing. And I'm like, okay, this really... I'm really sucky at a puppet show, right? This is not good. And I just held my arm was starting to kill me. And I just held my arm there and didn't move it for a minute. And and the puppet didn't talk or anything. And all of a sudden he said, do you live here? (gasps) (laughs) And I realized now he's connecting, you know. And so that's when we had a little conversation. I said, yeah. He said, where do you sleep? You know, and then we had this little thing. And so then my arm started shaking by that time. And I put it down and I took the puppet off and I came around. And he went, Aunt Gates, you missed it. There's a little man who lives here. Oh, (laughs) my God. I mean, that to me was like the magic of that age is extraordinary. It really is. I mean, it's just a brilliant, brilliant and the power thing. of storytelling. Absolutely, to them. absolutely. Oh, it's, it's. I love that. Yeah, I love it. Kids are amazing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What's really interesting and powerful is when they start to mirror you and you see things that you go, oh, I do do that, mm. you know? Mm. And um, I don't know, what are some of the hard things? What are some of the things that really... Um, the, what I've struggled with um, was changing my, my understanding. See, I always... It very clear, you know, you have a baby, then you have a boy, then you have a young man, and then you have a man. Their evolution is understandable. I thought as a mother, I stayed the same. And mm. you, uh, what I learned is I had to evolve along with them. Mm. You are a caretaker, and then you're a mentor. Right, and, exactly. And that transition for me... Um, probably because I didn't have that with my mother. Certainly, I felt like she was my caretaker. I came to her for, you know, everything, and I adored her. But she was always my caretaker. And I always had a bit of a feeling like I wasn't trustworthy because of it. Oh, interesting. I didn't feel like I was resilient without her. So that... um, it took me a while to get the hang of being this new kind of mother, this evolution of what a mother is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I re- for me, I remember it was when my son was in seventh grade and he had a part. He had a comic part in a Shakespeare play they were doing at school. And it was a wonderful part. And he was 
Um, but he, you know, it, he just didn't, it, it was really a clown in a way, but he didn't get it at all. And I said, I, I, I sat him down. I said, look, I know I'm your mother, but I'm also a director if, and a teacher. And if you can separate, if you can just listen to what I say and try it, and if it doesn't work, fine, throw it away, and I'm not going to do a thing. But if you let me sort of do this switch, let's see what happens. And I, it was a longer talk than that, but it was really like, it's up to you. This is mm-hmm. your choice, and I'm cool if you don't do it. It's fine. Right. I can help you. I actually know how to do this, but you have to be able to separate your mom from an acting coach and leave your ego at the door. He was willing to do it, and, and I had him walk around and put padding in and start to find a thing. And I said, you go off and do it. Just go off and do it. And I'm not going to look. And you just, and he actually did it. And I, I, I think I learned about him just how tough he was about making that transition where yeah. he didn't have to defend himself so much because I defended myself a lot. So um, he grew up with, you know, mm. around that. So it was like wonderful to see how strong he was able to do that if I allowed him to do that. If I actually separated myself and said, here's what you might try. It's up to you. Um, and that's something he's taught me a tremendous amount. Um, I would say since he's become a man, um, when he, he's made certain decisions on his own and he's done it on his own terms. And I have enormous respect for the way he's done it. And he's helped me in many ways. Mm. I love it because we can get into times where he'll say, okay, I'm doing this for the mom and you, you know, and he'll tell me something about my planes coming in. I'm fine. We're doing okay. And then there's another thing that we'll have totally different talks that won't be, uh, it will be more of a mentor, more of somebody who were friends. And I love that. I, I think that's such a gift. That's, that's a wonderful, I, I certainly had that with my family because I worked for them. I, I studied under my mother. I worked for my father for 30 odd years. I've studied acting with my Wait brother. A what did you do with your father? Uh, I did musical Jubilee, a uh, musical at good speed called Cowboy. Wow. Uh, I assisted him in certain shows for Shenandoah. I was- You uh, did? It, yeah, one of his assistants, yeah. That's so cool. So it- uh, Wow. Yeah, it, it was just normal for me to see the parent and then the professional. And it was easy to, to really respect the professional. And I just- that it, it was a complete, people didn't know that we were related. Wow, that's ever. amazing. Yeah. Oh, tell me about that, because that's that's extraordinary, Nana, to have, uh, to be the dance captain or assistant to your father, who's this incredible choreographer. It, it yeah, it was, um, he was such an artist. He was all about, I, I feel like most of his brain was filled with dance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that. there was more dance in there oh. than anything else. And it was easy to respect. He was also a student of my mother's. We were both, so we were both students. Wow. He had been a student at 19 and onward. And me, around the same age, I I started taking her class much later. Um, so how what he thought dance was about, I so respected. Uh, we were on the same page that way. And he was fair. He was tough, but always fair. And I never had a problem working with him at all. That is so amazing, actually, because I don't think everybody could say that when they are working with their parent, you know, that they would disagree. But but can you verbalize a little bit more? Because I know he that he was Fossey's assistant a lot. Um and Fossey had a reputation as being a perfectionist, but also screaming at people. Uh, which, what, yeah. what did your father feel about that? Uh, you know, back in the day, Jerry Robbins was known as just uh, kind of evil. I mean, he really? tore, yeah, he tore people apart. Um, but there was a belief at the time, you suffer for your art and mm-hmm. you ne- and the, the end result was, you know, sometimes poetic, so doesn't doesn't the end justify the means? Um, I think today we would say, no, it's abusive. Right, right. Um, and there were times that my father, certainly at home, 
could rage. Um, and he would use it once in a while with, but very judiciously with, um, he was very kind. And I think because he was used to playing the good cop to Jerry Robbins, bad cop, that uh, he was very kind to dancers and he loved dancers. But once in a while he would uh, drop the boom um, if he needed their attention or if they were messing around or whatever. Um, and that could be scary. He could be very scary. Yeah, it, it was a way that people did. I mean, I was raised where people just, you know, would push you around, took hands on, tell you move over here, do that. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was just, that's how I was taught. I mean, that's what you did. And what I don't, what I've never liked is when somebody yells out and humiliates another person. I feel that there's just other ways to do it and that it can be so, so um, damaging. Well, I think that uh, dancers who worked under Jerry mistook his methods for his genius and took his methods and didn't necessarily have the genius along with it. Um, I, I, I was on stage while Michael Bennett just ripped us all to shreds uh, when he came in to fix my one and only. Mm. Um, the one who stayed to fix it, Mike Nichols, uh, did it just the opposite. Yeah. Uh, he was a gorgeous, gorgeous human and kind and made you feel creative, not because your life depended upon it, but because you had the space and the safety to do it. Safety is so important in those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really fascinating the different ways. It's funny, even people who didn't like my teacher, Lecoq, because he was tough, he wouldn't ever yell at you like that. He would just, there was a disdain, though, sometimes if he would just go, you know, people would do something, he'd just go, no, that's not it, mm -mm, no. Next. I mean, it was just yeah. like, wow. So you would feel cut to shreds. Here's a question. If you had to be one of the seven deadly sins, which one would you want it to be? <sighs> Do you need a refresher on the sins or not? I'm, I'm thinking gluttony. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You boobalette. Right. I'm a big boobalette. Okay. All right. Um, and how, which of the seven dwarfs would you be? I think I would probably be happy. That's what I was thinking you would be. Yeah. That is my my natural um, wish. Mm, mm. That's nice. That's nice. What about you? Well, sadly, I think right now I'm going into, <laughs> it's a cross between dopey and sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been trying to fight against it, <laughs> but it's been pretty relentless. And, and the seven... <laughs> Uh, deadly sins? Seven deadly sins. I don't know. That one's tough too. I would say, I think, I think it's between sloth and envy right now. Mm. Yeah. I think between sloth and envy right now. What do you now. envy? Well, I, I, you know, I think I only get into envy to beat myself up basically. I think that's when I go. That's the kind of, if I want to beat myself up, it's because that's the first start. Well, if you would only work harder, I mean, they got it, but of course then they're working hard, you know, or whatever. Um, I want, I, I want to make my garden prettier, but then I have to, oh, like their garden is so pretty. But then I go because you don't work enough and you don't do this. And, and then, you, you know, if you do that enough, you just want to take a nap. Oh, yeah. So I say it's between envy and sloth yeah. in that way. Okay. If you see what I mean, it's sort of like... Yeah. You know, yeah, I want that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you spend your energy and that's just exhausting. And yes. Then, <laughs> you, you exhaust yourself, <laughs> beating you want, yourself up. And then you just have to take a nap. You, you have know? a stick that is really heavy that yeah. you beat yourself yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my ex always used to say, no, 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 carrot, not the stick. And I'm like, yeah, but the stick works so well. <laughs> um, you anyway. might have really been a great Jerry Robbins dancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, listen, that was, I, that's the way I was raised. It was yeah. just like scream, do it again and pushing you here and there. And the first time I directed like anything, I kept touching people and I didn't realize you don't do that. You just don't do that. But it, it was like, it was like second nature. I mean, oh, first, I of all, know. first of all, in Ohio, we are touchers, you know, it's how, how you doing, you, you put a hand on and you, right. you it's just something. Um, and everyone in my family did it and it's just, but 
if you're a dancer, you really, you're, all of my teachers were always just jerking your hand up or whatever. So it, I thought it was normal. Right. I didn't realize it could be f- offensive. <laughs> all the things that we thought were normal. I yeah. remember a costumer when I was 17, reaching into my, the front of my dress to pull my breasts up so that there was, <laughs> and, and I was horrified and I thought, I don't want to be in this business right. where this is okay. But my assumption was this is okay. And this is what I have to learn. And I have a choice, get out or put up with it. I never thought there was another option such as, please don't reach into the front of my dress. And and I noticed that, you know, in the essay you sent me, which I loved, by the way, um, you're a really wonderful writer. You definitely are a good writer. Yeah, no, it's great. Really love it. Um, Like when you said, so, you know, you were going in for Twiggy and it's like, okay, either you can enjoy this or you can, you know, walk out and I'll forgive you. See, I don't know that I had the space to tell myself that. It was just like- You have to do it. You better do it. You better do it or there are going to be consequences. I mean, I think that's where I was. There was not a shred of forgiveness. But there was such panic about going on for her. Think of of three or four numbers, tap numbers, not knowing them and having to get on a Broadway stage. You just learned them. Here you go. Terrifying. Yeah. There, I think there might have been a, a place in you that you go, I need to run. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally, totally. I think it was so important that I did it so perfectly. And then there's another side uh, that as I've gotten older, I've gone, you're not so important. I mean, they're watching all sorts of people and other things. They're not watching every single thing you, you do. So have have enjoyment, you know, and do bring yourself to it and and commit to it. I mean, you have to do that. You have to commit to it and do the best you can and all of that. But if you believe in the community of everyone on stage, um, I mean, I did a play not that long ago, and it was the most terrifying experience I've ever had because the man who was playing opposite me, we had 40 minutes on stage, just the two of us, without Mm. any break. We never left the stage, and it was just he and I. And in that time, there was a dead body, and we had to pretend to, to, to pull that body up and pretend it was a hanging and do this whole thing. And it was so much talk and dialogue. And he had been having memory problems. Oh, God. And he had sometimes skipped little things. But the last night, from the second line, his mind went totally blank. And he didn't know where we were, what the actions were. And I have never had such an experience in my life. And you know who saw that was Armin. Armin saw that performance, Armin and Kitty. And uh. I I have never in my life been so present. I mean, it mm. was like I was vibrating yeah. because literally I knew I had to do the physical actions, the exposition, the arguments, his side. My, It was like, it was like one of the biggest stage nightmares but reality nightmares that has ever happened. It was really, really amazing. But, you know, you you get through it. You do. You just get through it and... Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I've come to... In, in our bodies, in the world, there is like we have... It, it, it's, it's the way we integrate. And that space of integration in our bodies is on one side is chaos, on the other is rigidity. And we have to live somewhere in In the middle. And so that means perfection is rigidity. And we, it's not something that we can even go for. We always have to go for good enough. And really just that thought will free our minds to do what we know. But you are a perfectionist. Everything I know about you, you are, you are. I am. And that's why I have to say to myself, <laughs> okay. just do this well enough. Right. Do a B plus job. Right. And it's never, uh, it's, it's, that doesn't mean I work less. That means I don't tie myself up into, into such a, a state that I can't do what I know how to do. Right. Right. Um, just a couple more things that I wanted to touch on. Um, so what kind of dance 
did you, you and your mother, I know I've asked you this before, but I can't remember what you had said. When she was with a little girl, when she was with her dancing brothers and sisters, the whole family dancing, what kind of stuff did they do? As I'm reading something about her that just blew my mind uh, this the other day, it was like, and they were good friends with Isadora Duncan. And I'm like, what? Mm. What? Yeah. Isadora Duncan traveled with her rainbow troupe and they were children that she had gathered. Um, my grandmother, this is the amazing thing about her. So she was 35, 35 and decided that she wanted to dance. So she went <laughs> oh, to the God Paris. Only. Right? I love that. Right. So she went to the Paris ballet and lied about her age, got in and got training. And, uh, what she also didn't mention was that she had 11 children. Oh, jeez, 11? She had 11 By the time children. she was 35? By the time she was 35. She what? started, yes. And uh, there was one set of twins. And- uh, Good Lord. She, she went back and taught them all. Her husband was a very lovable alcoholic inventor. So we know what that means in terms of- uh, providing for 11 children. And she went, okay, this is it. She taught them all to dance. It was all ballet training and, you know, like uh, the gods and goddesses. Mm -hmm. It was that kind of vaudeville, you know, high thought uh, production and and very, very close to what, it, it, in terms of style, what uh, Duncan was doing. And they toured all over the world, Africa, Europe, um, and when they got to America, uh, the children were older and the acts broke up and most of them became teachers. Wow. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. She was That's a extraordinary. formidable woman. I'm, I would imagine with that many, ch I mean, what are you going to do? You have to be a drill sergeant. You, yeah. you can't, I'm, you know, you have to, how are you going to feed these kids? She would line them up and say, children, this is my new lover. Um, you're going <laughs> no. to see it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. And the children were, they'd make a great storybook. They were crazy. There are stories of one of the boys uh, ride, trying to ride his horse up the stairs in the house in Paris. And just, they, they just were out of control, out of control vaudeville children. How amazing. I mean, it's one of those things that sounds so charming and you, you want to be them when you read about it or hear about it, but it must have been brutal. Yes, too. Yeah. there you go. It's That's a, the truth yeah, of it. The truth of it is it wasn't easy. Chaos. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, when did you get your parrot? Can you tell me again? I, I know you've told me, but... I got my parrot. Um, I'm not very good with linear time, but it was um, about 12 years ago in New Mexico. Uh, oh, okay. such a strange place to, you know, but certainly uh, having him on an acre of land, we never thought about his screaming because they scream. <laughs> oh, they scream, they, they, they scream. do. Yeah, they t he talks a little bit, but he screams a lot. So you, you went into a store deciding to get him or someone said, no. I have a parrot, we need... No, I was getting dog food and there was this clown. He was a clown, he is a clown. And I just convinced Matt, I said, Matthew, please, we need this. And that was the last time it worked because when I tried to buy a donkey, by that time he'd hardened his heart to me. And it was like, no, if we ever have to move to New York again, we can't move with a donkey and a goat and all <laughs> these things that you want. So <laughs> He's so unreasonable. Really. It's so unreasonable. Really. I, I loved it because I had actually put a down on a baby donkey. Oh my God, he was so beautiful black and gray spotted mm. donkey. Mm. And uh, when I called the woman to say I was going to, she said, wait, let me guess. Your ass told you, you can't have my ass. <laughs> I said, yep, that's it. She said, that's I funny. get it. It happens all the time. I love it. But when we moved to New York, um, as Matthew predicted uh, for work, uh, oh my God, I had to start traveling with him in my shirt because I couldn't leave him at home because he would just scream. Wow. And we were close to getting evicted over it. So uh, he, I had this vest and he got, he loved it. He would just, he'd be on the subway with me. No one would know. He was just hidden in my vest, very happy. Only one time I ran into someone in a store 
And I started laughing, and that's one thing he does is laugh. Oh, like that's me. funny. And he started laughing that's along funny. with me. That my is parent, funny. My, my, my friend couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. That's super funny. Yeah. Well, I've met your parrot, and he definitely adores you, that's for sure. And he doesn't want anyone to come near you. Nope. Matthew must have to really fight. No, he likes Matthew, <laughs> Oh, he too. does. Oh, well, that's good. He that's- likes Matthew, and he likes my brother, and that's just the, the friends in New Mexico, and that's it. Hates the boys. <laughs> Stalks them. I love it. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. So I have one thing I remembered, um, like, two seconds ago. That was, to me, very funny. When my son was three, three and a half, I remember this. So we have a very open, like it's an open bathroom. It's a big bathroom. There's two sinks. You walk around. There's a big bathtub. And then there's this place where it's an open shower. And I'll never forget, I'm in the kitchen doing dishes. And he runs in. Mommy, 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 come here, come here, come here. Mommy, 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 come, come, come. And we're running, and he runs me right up to the shower where his father is taking a shower. <laughs> and he points to his cock, and he says, Have you seen that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Yes, I have. <laughs> but it was like, and meanwhile, he'd taken showers with his dad for a long time, but it just, clicked in one day. And that's what happens. It's like, I remember he was brushing his teeth one day and then all of a sudden he was like, what am I doing? He started laughing because it just seemed so funny to put something in your mouth and go up and down or sideways or whatever. And that was one of my favorite moments. I love that. It was like a clown discovery. It's like, have you seen that? And I was like, you and know, he had to share it with you. He had to share it with yeah. me. And I'm like, wow. And then I went, it is incredible. <laughs> Amazing. What was you your know, husband doing what, during all this? He was taking a show. We were laughing hysterically because he oh. didn't know what was going on. And and he's like pointing. And it was funny, okay, because he's just washing. They had both been, he, he, my son was soaking wet. They'd both been in the shower. <laughs> but they'd done it a million times. Yeah. That sudden realization. Yeah. Yeah. I have those moments still, don't you? Of <laughs> I thought, do. Wait a minute. This is weird that we all do this. That's right. I yeah. agree. I yeah. agree. <laughs> well, I love you. Thank you for I love you, doing this. And uh, I hope you have a, a wonderful year ahead and uh, all is good for you. You too. All the best with this. I'm so glad you're doing it. Oh, thank you. Nana is just so direct, so comfortable in her own skin. I love that about her. And I wish her all the best in all and any of her endeavors, especially in her boobalette making. To me, she epitomizes the goat queen. And as we know now, that is a very high compliment.